Good evening. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome you to this La Trobe Asia event uh, on the Quad, Emerging Security Issues in the Indo-Pacific. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Beck Strading. I'm the Director of La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University here in Melbourne. I would like to begin the event by acknowledging uh, the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University sits uh, and upon which we are meeting this evening. And I would like to pay my respect uh, to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to any Indigenous participants who might be here with us uh, tonight, either here in person or of course online. Uh, I know that there are many uh, audience members who are Zooming in this evening. La Trobe Asia is proud of our efforts to engage the public in thoughtful discussion and debate on issues uh, that are shaping the region uh, in which we live. We are particularly proud uh, to be running the 2022 Quad Min uh, Emerging Leaders Dialogue, uh, where we have brought together emerging leaders from Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. And we have been uh, in a workshop for the last two days. We've had eight very stimulating and thoughtful uh, discussions uh, over the last two days on a range of different issues uh, to do security, economic, uh, political issues uh, that are shaping the region in which we live uh, and thinking about the role that the Quad plays in addressing some of those critical issues. So tonight we're going to explore some of these uh, issues and challenges of the Quad uh, and we're going to think about the role uh, that the states play uh, in dealing with some of these critical emerging issues. Uh, we're going to unpack some of the Quad working groups. Uh, we'll examine how the Quad can address things like climate change, maritime security, geoeconomics, and technology security in the Indo-Pacific. As always, with La Trobe Asia events, uh, we will have time for Q&A. Uh, so for those of you in the room, uh, when we get to Q&A, feel free to put your hand up and I'll come and give you the microphone, which we need uh, for people to be able to hear online. And if you're online, we'll be using the Q&A function tonight. So feel free to put your question in the Q&A box. Uh, but I am delighted to welcome our panel for this discussion. Uh, I'll start with Dr. Studi uh, Bhatnagar, who is a research fellow at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. Dr. Studi, welcome. I will also like to introduce Kate Clayton, who is a research officer with us at La Trobe Asia and has been working very hard over the last two days, actually over the last few months, uh, to pull together the excellent program uh, that we've put on as part of Quadmin. Thank you for joining us, Kate. I'd also like to welcome Tom Corbin joining us from Sydney, who is a research fellow at the Foreign Policy and Defence Program at the United States Studies Centre. Thanks for coming to Melbourne, Tom. And Last but certainly not least, we have Eleanor Shiori Hughes, who is a defence analyst uh, from the Asia Group, coming all the way from the United States. So thank you, and, and is a participant in our uh, Emerging Leaders Quadmin program. So thank you, Eleanor, for 
for joining us on the panel. So I'm going to start with you, Kate. We're here at the QuadMIM conference. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the point of this, uh, this QuadMIM conference is and the role of the next generation security leadership in the Quad? Yeah, thank you so much, Beck, and to the fantastic panellists that I, whose work I admire and Twitters that I stalk over the past few years. So thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for being here tonight. So Quadmin 2022 Emerging Leaders Dialogue wouldn't have happened firstly without the support of the United States Embassy and also the United States Consulate General here in Melbourne. It's an effort to harness youth leadership in a region that has 60% of the world's young people. So that's the Indo-Pacific region. So that's 750 million young people in our region alone. So young people experience security in quite a different way to other people. So if I reflect on climate change, I grew up in regional Victoria, there were lots of bushfires. I missed out on a lot of my education, well, not a lot, that's an exaggeration, a decent amount of my education because of bushfires. And that's only going to increase in climate change. That meant that there were year 12 exams that I missed because there were fires on train lines and I couldn't make it to school, which sounded very dramatic at the time for an 18-year-old. But these are the types of issues that young people are experiencing in ways that other generations aren't and they're only increasing. So the importance of youth leadership in these security issues and how we experience those security issues is key to our future. So we look at something like technology, misinformation, disinformation is primarily going to target young people because it's young people who are on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, all of those sorts of apps and the insights that we have as digital natives, as people who are experiencing climate change right now, are key to how we actually solve these issues. So if we want to have inclusive security dialogues, it's key that we have young people. I reflect, for example, on when AUKUS was announced that we were spending billions of submarines and a lot of my peers were like, why aren't we spending this much on climate change? So the type of security issues that young people see compared to other generations are inherently different. They're a little bit more non security, we look at these soft security issues. And that's where the Quad comes in, is that the Quad does look at these more softer types of security. So that's climate change, health security, tech, maritime. These are inherent to how the Quad functions because it can't really be a hard security issue because its whole aim is how do we incorporate security in the Indo-Pacific region, making it a rules-based order, freeing Indo-Pacific, all of these buzzwords that we hear, but we're not really sure what they practically mean. So the Quad's really important for these soft security issues of which young people have unique, expected, unique perspectives in how we solve them. So this brings us to QuadMIN. So we've been lucky enough to bring 16 fantastic emerging leaders from each quad country. So we've got four from each country who have a variety of expertise. We have people who are looking at gender, at tech, at your more traditional climate change. And it's these young people who are going to be looking at the next generation of quad managers. So, so far, we've had quad 1.0. We're currently in quad 2.0. Fingers crossed we don't need a Quad 3.0, but if we do, these are the leaders that are going to be helping us with Quad 3.0. Thanks so much, Kate. And uh, Eleanor, you're up next. And, I mean, you've come a long way to be with us and you've probably got a bit of uh, the jet lag going, but I'll start you off with a big, broad question uh, coming from your perspective. What do you see as the critical security issues uh, for the Quad? Uh, and yeah, really interested to get like your sense of what uh, the Quad's dealing with now and what they'll be dealing with in the future. 
Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm so grateful to be among distinguished panelists, as well as fellow Quadman uh, delegates as well. Congratulations to you all for traveling from various places. And thank you so much to Latrobe Asia. Um, I just want to first iterate that um, what I'm saying here today is not reflective of is my thoughts and my thoughts only and not that of my employer. Um, but as for the very broad question, Beck, um, that's a hard, a very hard answer. But um, for those who know me, um, so my background in academic interests are mostly Japan security and foreign policy. Um, in, uh, as of late, more recently, uh, Japan-Taiwan relations, um, Indo-Pacific uh, security more broadly as it looks from a more U.S. perspective, as well as China's rise in the 21st century and its implications for the region and globally. Um, but one thing that I've looked at when it comes to the Quad, as well as just the state of the Indo-Pacific, is talent. Um, the dearth in human talent, and I look at it particularly from the semiconductor industry perspective, but increasingly, you know, semiconductors are not the only critical technologies that, you know, various stakeholders in the Indo-Pacific, both that are part of the Quad, as well as those are not part of the Quad, are they're trying to safeguard um, their own um, strategic technologies um, due to um, weather anomalies, whether it's the reverberating effects of the pandemic, um, the deteriorating relations between the U.S. and China. Um, but at the same time, I'm hard to see that Quad members are working to address some of these challenges now and hopefully going forward without having a Quad 3.0, but going through a Quad 2.0. Um, for example, in March 2021, um, there was the launch of the Critical and Emerging Technologies uh, Working Group. Um, and in September 2021, um, there was the announcement that there would be a Quad Fellowship. And that was something that I was especially very happy about. Um, and they did just um, finish application, receiving applications in July. Um, so hopefully what I'm hoping for within the next few years is for the Quad nations to work together to tackle some of the workforce development challenges that are facing the industries that these countries are so that are working on, whether it's semiconductors, quantum for I think I believe Australia is working very hard on that, um, AI, et cetera. So that's one thing that I'm very interested in. The second thing that I'm hoping we will continue talking about beyond our time here at Latrobe and the Quadman Dialogues is, you know. I feel like there's, a, you know, there are more security components associated with Quad 2.0. And I understand that because there are a lot of regional security challenges that, you know, no single country can um, tackle on its own. And I completely get that. But at the same time, if we're going to take them, if the Quad is going to take a more security oriented uh, mentality, what I ultimately hope doesn't happen, or sorry, what I ultimately hope happens is that we don't forget the origin of the story behind why Quad 1.0 was created, which is to deliver public goods, particularly when it was founded after um, the Boxing Day tsunami. So if we're going, if the Quad is going to take a security oriented posture, I think it's also important that the Quad nations also continue to emphasize the importance of delivering vaccines, whether it be one, one billion plus vaccines to various stakeholders to um, crisis management. So those are my two very uh, big answers, hopefully, to that one question. No, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I've never heard the answer to that question be talent. I think that's a really interesting point and perspective that you're bringing to the conversation. But uh, Studio, I wanted to bring you in here because your area of expertise is uh, India and Indian foreign policy. So what is, uh, in your view, India's perspective on the Quad and what does it see its role as being in uh, sort of grappling with these significant security challenges? Okay, uh, I'm a little out of my depth here. <laughs> I am not a Quad specialist, but it is one of India's very crucial foreign policy interests at the moment, so it's hard to avoid it. <laughs> and, and having said that, India is 
or has been understood for a while as the reluctant Quad partner, which is now beginning to take a more proactive position, especially on security issues with regards to the Quad. And I think for Indian uh, foreign policy, one of the key benefits of the Quad is maritime security, which is something that it has been pushing really hard on, particularly the uh, interests for India in the Indian Ocean region, not just in the Indo-Pacific. And, and I think that is something that the Indian policymakers have pushed onto the Quad agenda quite actively and have managed to do that as well. But apart from that uh, as well, I think the Quad for India is an opportunity to showcase uh, its talent, its resources, uh, to position India as a destination for investment, for cooperation in developing vaccines or, or even with educational exchanges. A lot of that is now visible within the Quad um, countries as well. Uh, India's association with the Quad, of course, is very different from the association of the other Quad partners as well. I think I should put that out here as well. India does not see the Quad as an alliance, which is a very different formulation from the other uh, three. And, and that places India in a very precarious position sometimes, which has become even more acute in the current kind of Ukraine crisis uh, uh, scenario. For India, Accord is one of the mechanisms by which it can secure its maritime and security interests. A lot of this is in the backdrop of India's declining relationship with the Chinese, especially since 2020, which has actually made India less reluctant about the Quad and more appealing to the other three as well as a partner in this kind of endeavor. So for India and to quote the Indian foreign minister, he prefers the Quad to be more loose-limbed and more flexible in its approach rather than being a very uh, alliance-like structure with very tight control and hierarchy. I think India prefers the diffused character of the Quad. The Quad for India, I think, also is an opportunity to develop bilateral relations with each of the Quad members as well. It, it, it has kind of come up in the background of India's improved relationship with the United States over the last decade. And, and that is, I think, a big uh, part of the push for the Quad within India as well. And it is using the Quad mechanism very effectively to further build these relationships at the bilateral level. A lot of that is visible in the India-Australia relationship, which has really taken off in the last year, I think, with numerous high-profile visits, a lot of exchanges of information and technology and so on. So I think I might stop here and maybe wait for questions to get to some of that. Yeah, no, we can definitely dig into to some of that in, in the Q&A. But I think your, your point about maritime security, I mean, even through Quad 1.0 and 2.0, maritime security has always kind of been a key part. One of the, the sort of important points through our discussions over the last couple of days is whether or not the Quad agenda is too crowded uh, because there's a lot of things that the Quad is trying to do and we can, we can sort of unpack that a little bit later. But staying on the maritime security issue, there seems to be a lot of excitement, uh, a lot of speculation about this new proposal that's been released around an Indo-Pacific maritime domain awareness program. And we've got Tom here, maritime security, as I said, key component of the quad. Uh, this announcement, you know, there's a there's a 
couple of paragraphs on what the Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness might mean. Can you give us your sense of what it's going to do and why it's important? Yeah, sure. Um, so it is ironic, well, it's not ironic, but it's funny, like, as you say, in the official statements on IPMDA, they're quite brief, but if you go and look at some of the analysis that's been written, there's not a whole heap out there, but it actually does a really good job of explaining what this is all about. And I would implore everybody to go and look at an article that Zach Cooper and Greg Poling wrote for War on the Rocks, which really lays out exactly why this is significant. And I'm going to try and compress their explanation of what this is and then kind of put it in a broader context of where I think a quad maritime security agenda that's broader than just this should go. So to kind of start by explaining what the IPMDA is, to me, it's the ideal sort of initiative for the quad that sits at the intersection of its provision of common goods to the region agenda with its core foundational logic as a maritime security grouping collective alignment, whichever descriptive term you'd like to use for that. IPMDA in itself uh, seeks to fill critical gaps in maritime domain awareness across the region by doing two things. So it essentially seeks to leverage commercial satellite technologies that are becoming more ubiquitous on the market at the moment uh, to help provide both a wider but also a more granular picture for all states in the region about exactly what is happening either in their territorial waters or in parts of the ocean that are of particular interest to them that's in the Indian Ocean, that's in Southeast Asia, that's in the Pacific. Uh, and the second part of this is that not only is it providing this data, but it's helping countries that don't have the capacity to process all of this data because there is a lot to process and a lot of smaller countries in the region don't necessarily have the capacity to make sense of all the information that is going to be fed to them through such an initiative. So it's important that this, you know, this initiative, as we understand it so far, and again, without having a closer look at the inner workings of it, we'll kind of be addressing these two components together. The idea here is to essentially allow recipients of IPMDA goods, if you want to put it that way, uh, to map patterns of behavior, uh, specifically illegal activities by state and non-state actors in, as I said, waters and oceans of interest to them, uh, and to maximize efficiencies in terms of sending out patrol vessels or aircraft to investigate exactly what is happening here. Because again, the capacity of these states to respond to activities in their waters that they're not particularly keen on is also quite constrained because they're quite small and they don't necessarily have the defense industrial maritime heft that a lot of other countries in the region like the quad members have that they can put behind these sort of initiatives. So that's a brief summary. Where does this fit into kind of an overall quad maritime security agenda? So there's quite clear order building uh, or shaping benefits to this initiative, if you want to use a term that's you know pretty clear in Australia's defense strategic update from 2020. Uh, in terms of helping states to manage and protect their marine resources across the region. But there's pretty clear implications here for strategic competition with China. If you consider that, I think somebody put the estimate at about 90% of IEU fishing across the Indo-Pacific is conducted by Chinese fishing fleets. And by extension, when you consider China's use of fishing fleet militias in its grey zone coercion activities across the region, but particularly in Southeast Asia. So I'll take another step out and kind of say, you know, this is a good start for the Quad. As I said, it's at the intersection of common goods provision and its core foundational strategic logic. But I'm amongst a small group, but I think an increasingly vocal group who don't think that the Quad should stop here when it comes to maritime defense and security issues. 
So in my sense, there's a growing need to build out a broader maritime defence agenda to complement the common goods provision and non-military activities that the Quad is pursuing. And it's quite early days for the Quad in terms of tangible deliverables, in terms of the common goods it's giving to the region. But I think you're also seeing movements at the, I'll call them the Q2 and the Q3 level. So the Quad 2s and the Quad 3s, so Australia, Japan, or India, Japan, US, whatever kind of collective you want to put it in, that are kind of moving in a direction that is going to lay the foundations for a broader Quad agenda. So for instance, you're seeing increasingly sophisticated military exercises in these 2s and 3s that are focusing on things like maritime domain awareness, like anti-submarine warfare, these quite high-end and sophisticated sorts of military activities that really have a deterrent value, especially if all four countries can do it, though not necessarily all together, all at once, all at the same time in every part of the Indo-Pacific. I think that's an important caveat to make. There's also a matrix of enabling agreements between all these countries to share logistics, to share bases, to share information, et cetera. And if that matrix is in place, then it's going to allow the Quad to do the sorts of things that I and my colleagues who are producing a report on this topic, which is due out next year, uh, hoping to advocate for. Uh, alignment is never going to be seamless, uh, but there's enough consensus between the four Quad members on you know, what the core problems are in the Indo-Pacific at the moment. So they're all concerned about the growth in China's naval capabilities and the way in, in which it's seeking to use them, but they're also concerned about the relative decline of US military power in the region and the need to mount a collective response to the challenges that China's naval modernization poses. In terms of what this should look like, I'm not going to give specific recommendations away because I want to protect them for the report's release. But, you know, as an example, we're giving information to states through IPMDA. We should also be giving them the means to make good on that information by giving them things like Coast Guard cutters, uh, naval drones to go and, you know, investigate for themselves what's really going on. Basically, the means to make good on the information that we're giving them. What a way to build anticipation. So we'll have to wait until next year to get Tom's recommendations. But uh, you did uh, mention the People's Republic of China, which I think we will have to come back to because this is one of the challenges, I think, for the Quad is that need to build a positive agenda while also recognising that there is a strategic rationale and how do you sell that to other states in the region? Uh, so we'll come back to that question. But, Kate, I mean, climate change is obviously a significant an issue of significant importance uh, for all of us, but particularly in, in how young people think about um, global issues and think about security. So uh, from where you're sitting, what role is the Quad playing in addressing climate change issues? I mean, this seems to be another area where public good provision uh, can really kind of build or contribute to the legitimacy of the Quad in the region. What role is it playing and where do you see it going in the future? Yeah, thank you for that one. As Eleanor said earlier, it's that first 2004 humanitarian and disaster relief that's key to the future of the Quad. And a lot of the work that we can imagine them doing is in this environmental humanitarian disaster relief. And we have six Quad working groups. As we said, we have a few paragraphs to go off. It's early days, but is it early days? It's been quite a few years since that tsunami there as well. 
So what we're seeing with the quad in these six working groups is that they're actually incredibly interconnected in how they support each other. So yes, there's six, but there's probably a lot less in terms of what they're doing in terms of collaboration. IPMDA is going to be helping with climate change. We have the quad satellite data portal, which is collecting data from the region, from the main oceans. As we've discussed, the Indo-Pacific is inherently a maritime concept, and that's going to help better equip people in terms of humanitarian and environmental disaster relief. Also, sea level rises. So it's all of these tech side and how the working groups support each other that's the key part of climate change. And I think one of the pros about how the Quad is going to be helping climate change is connecting these things. So we had in July this year the Sydney Energy Forum, and it was the first time that the four Quad energy ministers had met to talk about clean energy transition. We also have, let me get the acronym up, Quad Climate Change Adaptation and Mitigation Package, which is known as QCHAMP, which is also looking at things like green seaports and how we manage these. So many acronyms. This page is mostly acronyms. <laughs> but in terms of how the Quad functions, is that it's able to harness all of this technology. We look at health security with vaccines as well and to actually manage these problems and to actually attempt to solve them. And climate change in terms of the Quad has a special place in Australia is that I think it was quite stalled until we had the election of Albanese. That's where that we really saw Australia publicly internationally announce its net zero commitment at the Quad. And since then, we have seen a lot more action, more so words on climate change in terms of the Quad. And what we'll see over the coming years is how they'll actually manifest. We have the Quad will likely be in Australia next year. So that could potentially be a platform for Albanese to announce something a little bit more secure. But I think when we think about these Quad working groups is that they are very interconnected. And I think the Quad also does a very good job at connecting the region. When we think about climate change, it can be quite siloed. We think about climate change in the Pacific and we think about climate change in the Southeast Asia. But very rarely are those two things brought together. And I think the Quad has a really important role to play in bringing those two regions. ASEAN has done a fantastic job at looking at how we manage UNCLOS in terms of maritime boundaries. The Pacific are leaders in climate change diplomacy. We have COP27 happening at the moment. So it does a really good job at bringing these two regions, which I think the Quad countries and these extra regional powers, such as the EU and the UK, might see these states and these regions in silos. And this year we really saw as well the Quad kind of look a lot more towards the Pacific compared to usual. Previously it had stressed ASEAN centrality, but now we're looking more to the Pacific. So the Quad has a real place to play in having an actually regional solution to climate change in the Indo-Pacific. And it's not just separated by these silos. The Indo-Pacific is going to be one of the most affected regions by climate change. The top 10 cities affected by climate change, most of those are in Southeast Asia. We have nations in the Pacific that are currently preparing for rising sea levels and they have local oceanic resource management tips that they can share with ASEAN. And likewise, ASEAN with its lawfare and maritime boundary expertise, they can share those with the Pacific. So the Quad can kind of offer a platform. And I think that's the core of what the Quad does. It's a platform for collaboration, for cooperation, for bringing together the region. And it needs to convince the region that it actually supports the Indo-Pacific. And it's not just to counter China, but it needs to talk to the region in terms of its strategic communications. I've said before that I think the Quad has a PR problem in that everyone thinks it's about China, even though secretly we know it all is, but in terms of the actual things that they're doing are not all about China. So in terms of how the Quad actually manages and how it's involved in the region, I think climate change is at the core of how it convinces the region that it's actually for the region and not for their own strategic interests.
I think that's tricky, though, changing that narrative because, as you say, we all know it's about China, but uh, we don't want, you know, that to be, the Quad states don't want that to be the central narrative. Uh, but Kate's too modest, but I'll promote the piece that she wrote in Lowy earlier this year, an excellent piece in Lowy Interpreter that actually looked at comparing Southeast Asia and Pacific states and their approaches to climate change as a maritime security issue, recognising that these are not uh, siloed issues, that they are very complex and interconnected. So, check that out. Uh, but Eleanor, over to you. Uh, we're very excited to have you here because uh, just found out that you interviewed um, the late Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe earlier this year, just before uh, the Ukraine war. So I'm wondering whether you can tell our audience what did um, Abe-san have to say about Japan's role uh, in the Indo-Pacific? Sure. Um, I will also add to context how this interview went about, or what this interview was about, um, and where you can find it in case you're interested in reading it. Right. <laughs> Do a little bit of self-promotion here. Um, but basically, um, last December, um, Prime Minister Abe said something um, about how a Taiwanese contingency is a Japanese contingency. Um, as someone who lives and is based in Washington, D.C., I kind of felt like, you know, not only was that attention grabbing, but I felt like um, within the Taiwan space or within the China space or national security establishment that I didn't feel like, you know, Prime Minister Abe was, you know, a key driver in shaping Japan-Taiwan relations on a bilateral basis. And then, you know, and for the need for Japan to rethink its strategic outlook vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. And so I, you know, finished my first semester in-person semester at Georgetown. And I was really excited to, you know, write again, because writing, as you all know, could be a very solitary activity. Um, and I wanted to maximize my time in person by seeing um, and hanging out with my friends all the time. So I asked my friend Riley Walters, who was deputy director at the Hudson Institute, which is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank, if you could possibly look at, you know, an article that I wanted to write, which then turned into this interview, I just didn't actually expect when I first thought of this idea of writing this article that I would actually get to talk to Abe, along with someone else, of course. Um, so in late January, actually, it was either mid or late January, it was before the Ukraine war, um, you know, Riley and I, we had a series of questions in advance, and it was mostly about um, Shinzo Abe-san's, um, you know, Taiwan legacy. And that's the title, by the way, Shinzo Abe's Taiwan legacy. You can look it up on Google, Hudson Institute. Um, so we asked him a series of questions about, you know, what prompted him to rethink that, and, you know, Japan, the need for Japan to rethink, you know, its outlook on Taiwan which he said, you know, one thing that really was attention grabbing for me was that he said ever since he joined the Japanese diet um, at the time, 28 years ago, um, he thought, you know, Japan really needed to work on deepening relations with Taiwan. That's something that I had never heard of. Um, I'm not sure if that was covered in Japanese media when, at the time when he was talking about Taiwan all the time. Um, you know, up until his death, um, I would say, you know, although his legacy can always be debated on it in terms of whether it's the Abenomics, the Quad, um, you know, his Indo-Pacific, uh, you know, strategic vision on the Indo-Pacific, um, my um, argument is that he devoted a lot of his political capital in the last few months of his life on Taiwan. And he even wrote a piece, I think, with the Project Syndicate about Taiwan, particularly because of the Ukraine war. I think uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, that made him re realize that perhaps 
the U.S. also needs to rethink its um, role in the event, unfortunate event of a Taiwan contingency. And that's why he said on TV that you know the U.S. should formally advocate strategic clarity and shelve away strategic ambiguity. He didn't necessarily say that Japan should play a role, but he just said that you know Japan does need to rethink its strategic outlook. Um, so, for you know, in terms of the interview, um, one quote that really caught me was that he said, you know, Xi Jinping is consolidating his power base, as in it is no longer hiding his ambitions towards Taiwan. And I think that when the twenty-party Congress happened, he made that quite clear, not only by getting an, an unprecedented third term in office, but not renouncing, of course, use of force to uh, unify the PRC with Taiwan. Um, when I actually spoke with Abe. Um, Japan and Australia had just signed um, the reciprocal access agreement. So he did touch a little bit on Australia, and he said that Australia may have a role to play in the event of a Taiwan contingency. Um, and then in his last publication, although he did not talk about this in the interview, um, I think during this Quadman conference, and when we talk about the Quad, we think of you know actors that are geographically based in the Indo-Pacific. But one thing that Abe also emphasizes that you know actors in Europe, for example, also have a role to play in shaping the state of the Indo-Pacific, such as the UK or Germany or um, France. Some of these countries, for example, have tra made transits through the Taiwan Strait. Um, more recently, um, Germany and Japan um, in April 2021, they had their first two plus two dialogues, and they did have one a few weeks ago as well. Um, meanwhile, um, I think a few weeks ago, the Financial Times reported that the UK and Japan will uh, plan to sign a reciprocal access agreement, which basically means that the two countries can, you know, conduct more joint military exercises, and that will also allow the UK to also entrench its presence further into the Indo-Pacific. So um, I'll stop there. Happy to um, answer more questions about Abith during the Q&A, but we'll stop there. Well, it's interesting that you rise, uh, raise the issue of sort of extra regional partners. But I, as I like to say, the French are definitely an Indo-Pacific power, even though we don't think about it very much. And along with Australia, they have territorial and maritime claims exactly. in the Indian Ocean, the, the, the Pacific Ocean and the Southern Ocean. So that's sort of critical importance for Australia as well. But um, Studi, expanding out from the quad countries themselves, uh, how might the Quad interact with uh, other states in South Asia? Going really back to that question of buy-in uh, from, from other countries, Indo-Pacific's vast region, how do the Quad countries get other countries on board with the vision? Yeah, I think, and I've talked about this in the earlier panel today as well, I think South Asia dynamic needs more attention from the Quad. And primarily it's not happening because India is not putting it on the table yet, which is, I don't know, maybe they are doing it uh, in uh, in the closed group discussions or whatever, but it, it needs more attention because it is, I don't think in my, in the way I think about Indian foreign policy or, or Indian politics in general, it is very hard to disassociate Indian concerns from its South Asian neighborhood. And I think there is some analysis of this or some attention to this in the think tank space where there this idea that, yes, the Quad is about maritime security and the maritime issues are important, but India's partners also need to be aware of its continental problems, its conflicting borders with other South Asian states, also with the People's Republic of China as well, which plays a lot of which has a lot of impact on the way India perceives of itself within the Quad, the way it behaves 
in the kind of framing it gives to the quad as well. Uh, having said that, I think the quad has kind of, by uh, looking at maritime security, this idea of enlarging it to the Indian Ocean region, particularly co-opting countries like Sri Lanka and Maldives into that framing has helped. It is in India's interest to do that. The other aspect of Quad, the public goods function, is something, again, that would have a lot of impact in South Asia. Some of that was visible with the COVID vaccine diplomacy that the Quad really pushed hard on. And, and, and that is something that these South Asian states need uh, from uh, the Quad partners and India as well. Educational exchanges, uh, even a lot of India's problems with its neighborhood or concerns with its neighborhood about are about infrastructure and connectivity concerns that again, that is something that the Quad could possibly help with and, and kind of enlarge the agenda to include that. I know we are talking about constraining Quad agendas, but I think in, from the Indian uh, understanding, I think, think they do like the public goods and the economic value of the Quad as much as they like the maritime security value of the Quad as well. I might stop here. Uh, totally agree. I think that the South Asia angle has been underdone. So it's really interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, Tom, it's been an interesting week or so in American politics. Uh. Uh, <laughs> the midterms and then an, an announcement recently from former President Donald Trump. Uh, how are the midterms playing out or how might they play out in a foreign policy perspective? Will it have any impact on the Quad? Uh, and what does it tell us about public opinion on foreign policy issues, if anything? Uh, sure. So I'm going to try and avoid the T word as much as I can. Yeah. Um, but there are two things that have really stood out to me from the results as we have them so far and insofar as they relate to foreign policy issues in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the first is that the narrow margins of control in Congress have not changed as a result of this midterm election. And that means that those narrow margins of control are going to remain a drag on US foreign policy and defense legislation moving through Congress at the speed of relevance. I'm not sure if everybody here knows what a continuing resolution is, but it's basically a stopgap measure that is introduced when Congress can't agree on a new spending bill for the year ahead. And it just basically freezes US government spending at last year's levels, which is good for continuity of government, but means if there are changes in direction or new initiatives that Congress or the White House through consultations with you know, its corresponding constituency in Congress want to introduce and want to fund, that funding can't necessarily move ahead at the time frame where, you know, all parties concerned would ideally like it to move forward. And this is something that senior officials in Republican and Democratic administrations in the past have pointed to as a serious problem. Uh, the most recent being, I think, James Mattis uh, put it quite bluntly in 2018 when he said, you know, it was something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing here, yes, 20 years of counterterrorism work in the Middle East has been a, a major drag and a major drain on U.S. military resources, but so has co congressional polarization and, you know, 
continuing continuous continuing resolutions uh and some research that i was part of at the u.s study center in 2019 basically looked at the number of days that these resolutions had carried over between 2011 and 2018 was an average of 140 days a year that's a lot of time for things not to move if you added all of those up together that's a couple of years worth of drag on new foreign policy and new defense initiatives including in the indo-pacific and again this isn't just a democratic and a republican split it's also down to splits within those two parties so you can't just lay it at the feet of one party or the other here i mean the other point i think is worth making in the context of this uh the outcome of this uh midterm election is that the democrats held on to the senate but they lost the house um and in that sense the White House may find itself uh, less able to pull some of the levers of influence in Congress to shape the contents of legislation as it moves through processes there. And I think we saw the benefits uh, of, you know, such influence play out earlier this year around the Taiwan Policy Act and the Taiwan Deterrence Act, which were competing versions of essentially the same thing. But one version contained um, language that was more provocative for, or from a Chinese perspective, uh, but also raised some concerns in the White House about, you know, the official policy that the U.S. has towards Taiwan as a sovereign entity or as something else. Um, so if more hawkish elements of the Republican Party are in control of, you know, the major committees in the House of Representatives and perhaps less attuned to the sensitivities of the White House when it comes to this sort of thing, this could end up creating some additional headaches for the White House and for Joe Biden as he goes about his foreign policy in the next two years. Well, that's interesting. Well, we that brings us to Q&A. We've got a, a few minutes uh, for, for question and answer. I have a question for the panel that I'd like um, the four of you to have a think about, and that goes back to that question of China and what the Quad is doing in relation to China. Is this a containment strategy? Is it a constrainment strategy is this shaping a regional order around China is that what the purpose is and whether or not um the fact that you know there is this perception that the quad really is about China whether that ultimately undermines its ability to include more states uh in in their projects so that's my uh, question. There were some questions in the Q&A. It came up briefly uh, and now it's disappeared again. But there was one about AUKUS, which I might run with, uh, because uh, we, while we're talking about the Quad, AUKUS is another strategic minilateral development. And this one is specific of it, specifically about whether or not Japan uh, should join AUKUS. Uh, and there is also a question there that I think is quite interesting about Taiwan. And Eleanor, you raised uh, the issue about Taiwan and whether or not these countries uh, in the Quad should abandon, I guess, their, their strategic ambiguity and adopt a more um, direct approach to the issue of Taiwan. But anybody in the room have any questions? Uh, if you do have a question, put up your hand and I will deliver the golden microphone to you. Uh, we have a couple. I'll, I'll, Tom Barber, I see you up the back. Thanks, Beck. Sorry to make you walk all the way at the back. Um, I I think it was Kate who mentioned before about how the Quad has a lot of its fingers in all these different kind of pies, like lots of different things going on. So I'd be interested to hear like whether anyone on the panel can answer. Um, whether you think that's a kind of asset in terms of it being malleable and that it can kind of target when things pop up and 
decide what's worth pursuing or not and drop other things or deprioritize or whether that's that makes it like brittle and it's a kind of liability because it can't achieve all of those and if it doesn't achieve some of them or not all of them to an adequate level whether its credibility might kind of not be seen as as strong as it could be so yeah thank you and i did see another question uh, so this one specifically calls Suti, has to, to do with India's engagement uh, or involving South Asia a bit more. Um, so, I mean, as you saw when Modi took office, I mean, uh, his his reach out to SARC nations was quite quite obvious in, in the fact that he invited all the SARC heads of government to uh, for his wedding in. But within five years and the deterioration of relationship with, with Pakistan, um, you saw an elegant solution devised by MEA where they shifted to from, from SARC to BIMSTEC in terms of those invitations, right? I'm, I'm wondering about the specifics of how India can leverage Quad and also, uh, you know, involve South Asia. I'm thinking of what are the practical ways it can do it? Do you think, is, is it through groupings such as BIMSTEC or is it, do you think it would be more uh, in, a, from, in a bilateral, trilateral sort of mode? How, how, what would be the practicalities of how India could go about it if, it, if there was enough political will to do that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, given that the Quad is just one institution and, in, you know, a lot of, there's a, there's a, a large array of minilateral and multilateral uh, institutions across the region. I'm going to take one more question or comment, and what that means is that I'll go around our panel and you can choose what parts of our questions and comments that you want to respond to, but one more for the gentleman here. Thank you very much. Um, a very quick question is uh, a reply. How is China replying to the maritime strategy of the Quad? Fantastic question. Uh, so, Kate, we might start on grab that one from you. Might start with you. Thank you. So I'm going to kind of try and merge the question about is it about Chinese containment and also Tom's question about fingers in too many parts. I think that, yes, it is about constraining China, but if it gets these four countries to the table, then is that a good thing? I think it is at the end of the day. If they're actioning on all of their working in groups and the if is the main word there, then that's a good thing. If they're supporting the region in a way that also doesn't try to overplay the current states. Again, we're stressing that this region is about ASEAN centrality, South Asia, as well as Judy mentioned, and the Pacific. So as long as local voices are still being heard, I think it's a good thing. So I think if we're bringing these four key Indo-Pacific powers to the table, if it's about China, yes, but they're not always talking about China when they're meeting. And I think that's really important. In terms of fingers in too many pies, there's so many things. And I think that allows the Quad to be both flexible, but that that's where it struggles to communicate to the region what it's actually for. I think it really needs to clarify the point of the quad. And there is some luxury in not clarifying to it because it gives you some sort of flexibility. No one can really call you out on doing or not doing something. So it's a both a kind of a strategic communication issue in that no one knows what it is, but also if you don't know what it is, no one can critique you about it. And as much as we're trying to critique the quad, it's also because we want it to do better because there is a lot of potential in joining these four states in the region, but it's our job to hold them accountable that they're fulfilling these obligations and that it just doesn't become about China. And I think the working groups do do a good job at kind of managing it and making sure that the quad is for the Indo-Pacific as opposed to for the four, for the four 
four states of the quad. So making sure that we're holding them accountable and that's the job of the media of academics and, again, making sure that they really nail down that strategic communication about what the quad is. Great. Um, I will partially also answer that I do believe the Quad is about countering China's objectives, whether it be um, supply chains, uh, you know, making sure that all these countries, in, you know, collectively and on their own can safeguard the choke points um, as well. But at the same time, I think to Kate's point earlier about, you know, the Quad has a PR problem, you know, China is projecting a narrative that the Quad is a destabilizing factor. And I think the Quad countries should and can do a better job and ensuring other countries who are recipients of these public goods, whether it's ASEAN or Pacific Islands or even non-Indo-Pacific um, stakeholders, that um, the Quad is in fact a stabilizing factor. So that's my answer to Beck's original question. Um, as for Taiwan, I'm only going to speak about Japan and Taiwan rather than the other countries since I don't uh, specialize in the other countries as it regards Taiwan. Um, but, you know, over the past year, at least, um, you know, Japanese officials have vocalized their concerns about Taiwan um, and the possibility that a Taiwan contingency is possible. Uh, not that, that you know, but unlike American um, officials who do create timetables, whether it's um, Admiral Phil Davidson with uh, 2027 to, I think, a, a recent Navy official who said even perhaps sometime as early as next year, um, Japanese officials don't usually create timetables. But I think, you know, Last year, when um, Joe Biden um, invited um, then Prime Minister Yoshihide, Yoshihide Suga to the White House, it was the first time since 1969 when uh, U.S. Richard Nixon and then in Japan, Eisaku Sato was an office that there was a Taiwan mention. That was very, um, from the Washington perspective, that was very attention grabbing. Um, and I think that gave the impression that Japan um, sees, you know, you know, I guess, making preparations to, in the event of a Taiwan contingency, its main strategic priority. But, and what I've heard from people in Taiwan is that, you know, they kind of have this expectation that Japan will not only be involved um, in, in terms of helping, you know, I guess basically, yeah, um, they would basically help defend Taiwan. Except the fact is that Japan, there is no legal framework by which Japan can do that. Um, and at the same time, even though they're trying to fortify the Nansei Islands, which is part of Okinawa, for infrastructural purposes, um, missiles, um, you know, there was a recent uh, war game conducted by a Japanese think tank actually shortly after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, um, that there are, there are definitely deficiencies in Japan's ability to evacuate its citizens out of Okinawa. And I also do believe that it extends to Taiwan Island proper. So when Japanese um, official, government officials visited Taiwan, um, there was one delegation that visited in July and one in August. At least one of those times, there was an announcement that the Japanese government and Taiwanese government have commenced talks to uh, facilitate evacu evacuations of Japanese citizens in the event of the Taiwan contingency. Um, so even though Japan is very concerned about Taiwan, that should not, it should not be assumed that Japan will come in defense of Taiwan. Um, even though people in Taiwan have heard, have projected their hopes that Japan will. Um, at the end of the day, I think Japan is prioritizing its own, you know, national interests. And the second part to that is, you know, this year, um, Japan and the PRC um, commenced the 50 years since their um, diplomatic, establishing diplomatic relations. Um, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, Japan always wants to emphasize that, you know, it's open. It wants to keep, you know, those communication channels at the high, highest um, echelons of the government open. So tomorrow, I believe, um, Kishida is actually, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida is meeting Xi Jinping. Um, but one thing I will say, though, is that I think Taiwan will be featured more prominently in these talks at the, high, the senior official level. So that's my answer to that. Um, 
Terrific. All right. Um, I'm going to try my best to be efficient here. <laughs> so talking about China, I think India is one of those states which is very reluctant on the China question within the Quad and for very understandable reasons as well. It has a very active border conflict going on with the Chinese at the moment. And so it certainly does not want to escalate that situation by um, kind of narrowing down on the Chinese threat, at least rhetorically and publicly, even though we do know that the push for the Quad is primarily coming from concerns about Chinese encroachment, Chinese projects, and so on. Uh, I think the other reason India prefers the flexibility aspect of the Quad is A, it avoids escalation or, or avoids angering the Chinese, but it also enables India to maneuver with some of the other partnerships that it wants to have, particularly with Southeast Asia, who are also very wary of naming China as an aggressor that the Quad is responding to. So for the from the Indian perspective, I think that flexibility kind of enables them to maneuver that better. Uh, and, and I think that they are, they are likely to continue doing that. So you can see this in the kind of ambiguity around Quad statements and, and, and they are getting that through the other, I think the other partners recognize this dilemma from the Indian perspective as well. They are uh, very aware of India's particular problems here. They are very even understood as well. Um, South Asia he, he is a big question mark. I think uh, the way I see it, the Modi government's policy towards South Asia is very reactive rather than proactive. The initial push to invite the SARC countries and to all his first foreign visits were also to South Asian neighbors. There was a big push in the first year to reach out to India's South Asian neighborhood. Again, this is not something new. This other governments in the past have done this uh, as well in a similar fashion. Um, but then, and I, again, something I raised in my earlier presentation today is that India's role in South Asia is problematic. It is considered as a big brother. There's a lot of historical baggage political baggage between India's relationship with other neighborhoods, which is one of the reasons the SARC doesn't really function as a regional organization. It is kind of stymied, A, by the India-Pakistan conflict, but also by this apprehension from the smaller South Asian states about India's leadership within the SARC, and which is why sub-regional mechanisms like the BIMSTEC or the BBIN and others have become more prominent. I think the BIMSTEC is a very interesting um, kind of grouping. I wouldn't call it an alliance or I don't know what to call it. Yeah. But again, you can see some of the problems or the challenges of India's policy here. BIMSTEC also includes Myanmar. And if we are talking about shared interests and shared values and democracy and things like that, that, that becomes problematic as well. So how far would India be in a position to push Quad partners to deal with a country like Myanmar is something up for question still. I think that debate is still ongoing. Um, I don't have a clear answer for you in terms of what they could do, but I think there is um, a big problem for India in South Asia is this idea of delivery deficits, which a lot of Indian leaders, policymakers, even the army chief has talked about. It's an inability to deliver 
in the South Asian region on deliver on projects, complete. I think investments in those projects may be from other court partners, some sort of assistance to deal with capacity issues might be the way out. But again, you need to be wary about how much India is willing to allow its quad partners within its own sphere of influence, which is South Asia, which will opens up a whole other can of worms, which I think the Indian policymakers will try to avoid as much as possible. And finally, Tom? Great. So I'm going to try and answer three of the questions. The first one is, what is the quad about? Is it about containing China? For some initiatives, yes, it will be. Is it about competing with China? For some initiatives, yes, it will be. Is it about countering China? <laughs> is it about shaping? Yes. Is it about building? Yes. Can it be about setting a positive regional agenda? Yes. Like, I think it's it's unfair to the Quad, notwithstanding its kind of foundational common strategic logic and the concerns that I outlined before about the nature of China's rise and its behaviour, painting it as counter or anti-China by default and then casting everything it does subsequently in that light is unfair and then it means we can't necessarily see as a first order effect what it's trying to do for the region in a proactive agenda setting or to building whatever you want to call it in that kind of manner. Uh, to go to the question about the pies, uh, is it doing too much? No, it's not doing nearly enough at the moment. Like it's it's delivered some vaccines and it started to collect and share satellite data. It's done some mapping of semiconductor supply chains and whatnot. Great. Is it trying to do too much in terms of what it's putting on its agenda? I think it is. I think the Quad has to be a bit more selective about what are the issues that are closest to the shared, again, foundational strategic logic that brings the four Quad countries together, because those are the areas where we're going to see probably the most interest and therefore probably the most output. And that can only benefit the region when it's in those kind of shaping, order building, proactive contribution areas that you know I was talking about before. The third question, should Japan join AUKUS? No, I don't think so. Should Japan collaborate with AUKUS countries? Yes, of course it should. And maybe it can collaborate on specific defense research and industry projects that might be considered an AUKUS project. But formally bringing it into the AUKUS fold is only going to slow down and further complicate an initiative, which A, we don't really know what it is, B, all three countries that are currently involved in it don't really have a shared understanding of what it is, and C, we haven't really delivered anything from it yet. And fourth, for Australia at least, AUKUS is intended to be some kind of battering ram to get at some kind of the institutional problems that exist in the United States that have prevented our two countries from collaborating collaborating on defense industry and technology issues up till now. Those haven't changed in the last year, and I'm not necessarily confident that they will change. And therefore, bringing in a fourth party like Japan, which, like the UK, might I add, is actually as much an industrial competitor to the United States as it is a partner, I think that's only going to, you know, it's going to complicate it even more than it already is. Thank you. And I might take the last question about the maritime security narrative. I think China, and having just got back from Southeast Asia, I think China is uh, has been able to muddy the waters on the quad narrative by talking about it in terms of uh, an anti having an anti-China containment agenda. Less successful on some of the maritime security stuff because, of course, 
China's nine dash line rubs up against uh, a lot of coastal maritime Southeast Asian states. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a, a difference there between the Quad and what the Quad's doing and some of those excessive maritime claims that the PRC is making, particularly in the South China Sea. But I'm not on the panel, but I just thought I would put my viewpoint forward. Uh, and we have unfortunately run out of time, uh, but please join me in thanking our exceptional panellists. Uh, another rich discussion adding to our Quad Min conference.